Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The purpose of this podcast is to expose you to great people who are helping cats daily, and hopefully you may learn a little bit more about what you might do for cats in your community. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Betsy McFarland. Betsy has 20 years of experience in animal protection. In her 18 years at the HSUS, where she served as vice president for the last five years, Betsy led the development and growth of multiple programs aimed at keeping pets in homes and increasing adoption of pets from shelters and rescues. She has extensive hands-on experience responding to numerous natural and man-made disasters, from hurricanes to large-scale cat hoarding cases. Betsy is the author of Volunteer Management for Animal Care Organizations and worked with the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to develop a research-supported volunteer program assessment model that serves nonprofit volunteer programs across the United States and Canada. Betsy is a certified animal welfare administrator through the Society of Animal Welfare Administrators and holds a degree in psychology from George Mason University. She serves on the board of the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs and Shelter Animals Count. Betsy shares her home with her husband along with four cats and a dog, all former strays, and she dotes on a colony of community cats who live on her property. Betsy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. So I just wondered, how did you get started in this business 20 years ago? Wow, you know, gosh, I really fell into it, as I think a lot of people probably do who work with animals. Uh, I, My husband and I had just gotten married after college, and he was accepted into graduate school at Texas A&M. So we moved to Texas uh, while he was going to school, and I was really looking for a way to get involved in the community because I'm from the East Coast and wasn't used to the area. So I started to look to volunteer, and I found the local animal shelter. And uh, as I as I you know stuck my foot in the door to start to volunteer, I realized they really had no good volunteer engagement. Their infrastructure was kind of a mess, and they were struggling. And so I, I didn't know the first thing about shelters, or, or I just loved pets. I had dogs of my own, and I decided to stick with it and help them. And I ended up running a volunteer program for them, creating some some infrastructure and helping them out. And and I fell in love with it and decided, okay, this is something I can really do to help the world. So that that just sort of dropped me right in the middle of animal welfare. It's interesting that your focus right off the bat focused on volunteer and sort of the volunteer resource. Um, when you first started, do you think that came from your degree in psychology and working with people? Or how, how did you find that interest came about? Oh, it's so interesting you asked me that because I think that really is true. Because I as much as I love animals, I mean, it's absolutely a passion of mine. The piece of it that I love the most is working with the people in this field and working with the community. To me, I really feel like no matter what the issue is we face as society, the answer comes from all of us. And I have always felt from day one, like just looking at myself when I walked into the shelter, I was a good-hearted person. I may not have known the first thing about how shelters run, but I was a good-hearted person willing to donate my time to make things better. And they weren't in a position to accept that help. And I felt like 
so many organizations struggled with that. And as a result, our, our programs as a society aren't as good as they could be. I think the more welcoming we are and engaging people and helping us solve the problems that are facing our world, the better we will be. And, and so to me, the people piece is really crucial. And how did you get interested in the question about community cats? Did that start off initially or was it more directed towards shelter and volunteer programs? It's funny because I, you know, I, the, the cat piece for me came later. Uh, I, I have always been a dog person from the time I grew up. I didn't quite understand cats. My mom wasn't really into cats, so we always had dogs. I had a house full of dogs growing up. Well, and you know, hamsters and rabbits and guinea pigs, but uh, never cats. And so, uh, you know, I tried often as a kid to, you know, it, uh, engage with a community cat, on, you know, or a neighbor's cat. And I just didn't quite understand them. And they didn't like it when I pet their bellies like I did my dog. <laughs> but, and so when I started with the shelter, you know, I was really focused on the dogs. And um, the, after I started, you know, moving up in the field and got the position at the Humane Society in the United States, it wasn't until about 2005, almost 11 years ago, when my husband and I bought our house where we live now. We moved out to a little bit more rural area, so we have a few acres and we're surrounded by lots of farm and woodlands. And when we moved in, we started seeing cats pretty quickly. Uh, and I, as I talked to my neighbor, um, he had he had uh, he'd been taken care of and uh, quite a few cats that actually had started originally from his pets that he had started letting outside. And over the years, it grew. And he, when I moved in, I thought, oh boy, okay, here we go. I'm going to start doing TNR because I was working in the field, even though I didn't quite, you know, I didn't have the same, it's not that I didn't have passion for cats because I love all animals, but I just, you know, I was a, dog, a true blue dog person. And so I thought, here we go. And, but, you know, he had told me, oh, I think I have them all spayed and neutered. That ended up not being the case, um, as we discovered pretty quickly when I had a litter of kittens in my, on my wood pile. Um, and that's really what thrusted me into it. I plucked one of those kittens off the wood pile, brought him in the house to figure out what to do with it. And he's still here today. His name is Cisco. <laughs> and so that really started the adventure of me really understanding, appreciating, and, and becoming very passionate about cats. It, it always comes back to a personal story. Uh, it's how we all get into this game, I think. <laughs> um, so it, you worked with the Humane Society of the United States for about 18 years. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your time at HSUS and what you worked on? Sure. Uh, it was fabulous. And I, it was a really hard decision for me to leave a couple of months ago. But uh, having been there as long as I had for 18 years, I mean, I had so many amazing experiences, as you know, you mentioned in the bio from, you know, doing media to working on disaster cases, um, and just building programs. I mean, the, there's so much tremendous work being done out there. Um, I was really proud of the efforts that we were able to make to really help change how some of our movement in the animal field approaches its work through things like Pets for Life, where we're delivering spay-neuter and other free services to people and their pets in underserved areas. So the, the time at the Humane Society was tremendous for me, and I just decided within the last couple of months that you know, I, I'm ready for my next chapter, and I'm still figuring out exactly what that's going to be. But I wanted to work, you know, as I mentioned in the very beginning of our, our discussion here, that 
you know, I'm passionate about people and, and, and their connection to the movement. Um, and I care about a lot of causes. So I've decided with a, a colleague of mine that we're, we're launching a, a consulting firm to work with lots of different organizations and causes, keeping a foot solidly in animal welfare, because I, I will always be passionate about this work, but also trying to work and help other causes and issues that I'm passionate about. With a focus on volunteer programs, is that a focus on the people side? Yeah, I definitely volunteer engagement. It's it's that will always be near and dear to my heart, and I would love to be able to work with a number of organizations to help them improve that engagement and really ensure that their volunteers are as integrated as can be, but also even management and leadership and developing strategy and how do you get your team and your people focused around the mission that you're trying to achieve in the most effective way possible. And I feel like. That was one of the strengths I had in working with my team at the Humane Society that I, I would love to be able to use those skills to help other organizations. So let's dive a little deeper in that. I'm, I talk with quite a few groups um, around the country and hear about their struggles, and a lot of it does involve people issues. Now, let's use the example of a very small group that's only run by three to five people, um, and they're always running around sort of reacting, putting out fires. What would you recommend a first step in trying to, you know, get some grounding um, and, and enabling that group to move forward and start thinking about growth? Yeah. And that's a tough thing because you see it so often, especially in the animal field, I think. There's so many rescues and, and cat groups who are doing amazing work, but it's so it can be so overwhelming. I think the and, and this is a hard thing for groups to do, but I think it's critical, and that is to give themselves some breathing room to step back and build some infrastructure. Because I think too often, in a way, folks who do our work, uh, and this isn't a criticism at all, but, but so the wording may not be right here, but almost become martyrs to the cause. And I think we have to be able to kind of have a little bit of balance, step back and help build some infrastructure so that they're not constantly underwater and they can invite others to help support the work. Because too often it's hard to stop and think about, okay, I, I just need to get these 20 cats fixed before they have more kittens. I don't have time to train someone else how to do it. So I just need to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. But what happens is folks burn out and we lose good people in our field or frankly, people become bitter <laughs> about, about people and, and the problems that we're facing. So I think it's really crucial for organizations to, you know, to step back, kind of create their plan and work on building some infrastructure and to engage other people so that they aren't spinning and drowning underwater. Do you have any interesting recruiting tips that you might be able to share? In terms of volunteers? Volunteers and or board members? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, all of it really should be driven by the work that has to be done. I mean, I think too often organizations will just kind of throw something out saying, we need volunteers, please raise your hand, or, you know, if you love cats, volunteer. But I think it's important to stop and think about what exactly are the roles, almost like you would for a paid staff member. You know, what is it that you need? What is the skill set you're looking for, whether it's a board member or it's someone to do cat trapping? Um, then really recruit for those skills and think about where can you find that person, not so much just putting it out to the universe, hoping for the best, but think about that. Like, is it, you know, for a board member, is it a professional with a local uh, nonprofit or, you know, people who have different skill sets, whether it's strategic planning or fundraising and, and go seek those people out directly rather than just the latest, you know, cat lover who wants to help out. And it's funny, I have to say, I just have to tell you, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I just looked out 
and one of my feral cats, who I call Spiral, is walking up the driveway. <laughs> we'll need to get a kitty cam out there for you. Just, just run it on the uh... for morning stroll. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I, then thinking about the leadership in those smaller organizations, how do they learn how to delegate those tasks out as they do find people? Yeah, and that's that's another tough one for folks to do who are who are used to being the doers. I think there's a difference when an organization is forming and it becomes a more solidified entity. The roles change, and so even folks who created it, uh, you know, the the initial you know phase of that organization, the life cycle of that organization is for them to do all the work, right? Because they were the founders, the creators, this is their baby. But as it grows, it has to really involve other people and being able to delegate. And I think um, part of that is is setting up the infrastructure. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there, and I'm happy to share some with you and your listeners in terms of how to, for example, for a volunteer program, like how to build that infrastructure so you have good position descriptions, recruitment, and when you bring folks in, you have some basic training to kind of get them going. So it's, it, there's really some key elements that are pretty standard no matter what the organization is, is focused on that help people to engage in a cause, right? So um, I think having that and being able to identify some particular uh, pieces of the work that you or you know within your entity are willing to share with other people um, and then finding those people and deploying them is is really the key and now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors the community cats podcast is generously sponsored by the merrimack river feline rescue society one of the nation's pioneers in successful tnr programs in 1992 in response to a persistent feral and homeless cat population along the merrimack river in newburyport mrfrs began a concerted effort to trap sterilize and return a colony of over 300 cats setting up and maintaining feral feeding stations that colony was successfully reduced to zero cats by 2008 Today, MRFRS's activities include two mobile, low-cost spay-neuter vans known as the Catmobile, an adoption program with a focus on special needs and hard-to-place cats, veterinary assistance programs for low-income individuals as well as unowned cats, and mentoring for local animal welfare organizations seeking to improve their TNR effectiveness. For more information, visit www.mrfrs.org. Flipping the picture here. Now, say I'm somebody who's new, like you did 20 odd years ago, walking into that shelter in Texas and wanting to be a volunteer. What should we expect? Or are there certain questions as an incoming volunteer that we should be looking for when we're looking for an organization to volunteer with? Yeah. And that's a great question. I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to a, what you're, what you're interested in doing and willing to do. But I think, you know, it's important to work with an organization that does value the volunteer efforts and is willing to engage and empower you as a volunteer. Um, and sometimes that means even as a volunteer, you know, if it's a cause you really are passionate about, I mean, like I found when I went to the animal shelter, they didn't have the infrastructure to engage me. And that, and I saw constant turnover when I, I, cause I stuck with it. I, you know, even as a volunteer who, who they didn't frankly really know what to do with me and the staff weren't even all that, friendly, uh, but I saw an opportunity to help and I thought, well, I'm just going to keep coming back and see what I can do. Most people who want to volunteer aren't 
necessarily interested in being that involved. And so, I mean, I was unique in that respect that, you know, I, and as I did that and I built the trust of the staff, which took a while, I watched lots of folks come and volunteer for maybe once or twice and then they never showed back up. And the reason being, they didn't feel, they didn't understand how they were supposed to be connected to the organization. They didn't feel empowered or clear on what their roles were and they didn't feel appreciated. And that's a, that's a big problem. If people aren't feeling that way, they will leave an organization. And in fact, that makes it worse because then the staff and everyone who's engaged with the organization, it's almost like this um, self-fulfilling prophecy of, thinking, well, I don't have time for volunteers, they're too much work, and then when they're not engaged properly, they are too much work and it doesn't work because they leave. Um, but that doesn't have to be the way it is. And in fact, there's such a better way to do it when you recognize that people do have amazing skills and you have to trust them. But in order to do that, you need to train and empower them. So as a volunteer looking for opportunities, I think looking for an organization that is willing to have the conversation with you to say, what are your interests and what are your skills and how do we best match you with something here at our organization that will benefit us both? I think those are some key things to be looking for. But it doesn't mean if an organization doesn't have that, you shouldn't still get involved because like I did, you never know what kind of difference you can make. It's just a matter of what folks are willing to deal with, frankly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you make an interesting point there that there are volunteers that are there that you know, want to work for like a three hour shift and there's a, the door opens and the door closes. And then there's the volunteer that's actually looking for a creative opportunity or willing to go into that direction and to be willing to say, well, Hey, you know, maybe we could rethink about doing it this way or doing willing to do some research. And that can be a positive thing or a negative thing, depending on how it's positioned. That's right. Yeah. And depending on what the organization needs, because sometimes, you know, well-meaning folks come in and, you know, you hear this all the time in shelters that because they have pets at home, they think they know how to run an animal shelter better, you know, and, and that can be off-putting to an organization as well, because there are some specific things that maybe a volunteer doesn't know, but it doesn't mean you don't have the conversation and engage and find the best way to help match that person's abilities, skills, and passion with a way to help the mission and the cause. If you are a volunteer that is working for a uh, shelter or volunteering at a shelter that you know, may, may need to progress in their programs, um, how would you encourage them to be advocates for change? I think definitely coming at it from a partnership approach um, you know, is probably the best and first option, especially if they already have a relationship with the shelter as a volunteer. I think following the proper, to start, following that proper chain of command, whether it's you know, as a volunteer reporting up to whoever they're working with, whatever role they're playing in the organization, talking to that person who they're kind of reporting to, whether that's the volunteer manager or another manager within the shelter or organization. Um, and then, if, you know, hopefully with some very well thought out and, and practical approaches to say, like, here are some ideas, here are some things I'm seeing, how can I help you? to improve this. Hopefully that would be well received by an organization and there could be a conversation and some clarity and even maybe some new programs or ideas that come out of that. Sometimes that doesn't work and some organizations um, you know, may not be interested in making changes even if they need to and in that case then a volunteer needs to decide how to go up through the chain of command to more of the leadership of the organization to maybe address some concerns. But normally I think if it's an organization that's engaging people the way it should, that kind of feedback and open dialogue is really crucial because I think volunteers 
see th- can see things a little differently and sometimes notice things that maybe a staff person doesn't just because they aren't there necessarily every day because they are volunteering for a shift or a particular project they have they come with a different and unique perspective and i think that can really benefit an organization if they're willing to listen listening and communication are critical keys to success in all of this just to go into some of the big picture questions for you to get your thoughts on um, community cats in general, um, you are supportive of TNR as a solution for cat overpopulation? Absolutely. 110 <laughs> percent. Yes. <laughs> and um, are you a supporter of pediatric spay neuter? I am. I think, you know, I think the sooner and the that we can safely spay and neuter cats in particular, the better. I mean, we have such, uh, we still have a pretty tremendous challenge with community cats all across the country. I mean, the estimates are what, anywhere from 30 to 50 million community cats. And, you know, I, from personal experience, have seen TNR work. I mean, on my property alone that we, you know, we talked about the fact that when I came, there were these cats. And, uh, I quickly realized not all of them were spayed and neutered, but I, you know, I, I took an inventory of every cat here. I had about 20, um, 20 feral cats here, and we ended up with two litters before I got everyone done. But I, you know, I, I ensured I trapped and spayed and neutered every one of them over, you know, a few months' time. And I'll tell you, 10 years later, I'm down to four. And so to me, like TNR is really the key. And I think what, what we need, though, as a community and in all of our communities is easy access for bringing in community cats to be spayed and neutered. I mean, I was just actually texting with a good friend of mine here locally in my community, and she has a mama and baby kitties on her property in her backyard that she needs to have fixed. And she was contacting the local groups, which we have a number of them here, and they're all wonderful, and they're doing the very best they can. But there's a three-week waiting period in order to get an appointment now because it's spring and things are busy. And that's a lot of time to go by for to not be able to get these babies or, you know, they're, they're not that babies. They're like, you know, they're old enough to be spayed and neutered, but they're still young and they're with their mom. Um, that That's a lot of time. And I think uh, one of the challenges before those of us who work in animal welfare is how do we continue, and I think it's getting better and better, but how do we continue to make it easy and accessible for people to to do community cat work? Because not everyone is interested in becoming a crazy cat lady like me, right? <laughs> and so to, to do the effort to actually trap and do it on a day when you know you can bring the, the cat in is tough. It's You have to re- kind of plan for that. And so I think it's up to us in the animal welfare movement to make it convenient and simple. And it's getting there, but we still have a long way to go. So you're saying too that the spay-neuter capacity hasn't built up enough to be able to cover the demand, especially in the summer months. I think that's true, at least in most communities. Maybe some have it under control, but I think a lot, it's still an issue in a lot of areas. Um, And so, yeah, I think that is key. And also empowering people in the community with how to do it and what it is. I think there's a lot of folks who still aren't familiar with it. And, um, you know, and it really is, as I mean, as you know, and I'm sure the folks who are listening here know, it is really a, a wonderful and humane option because we can't place all these cats in homes. It's not realistic, nor would they, some of them may, may do okay, but a lot of them aren't social. So what the best we can do for them is let them be where they are because they do really 
really well in most areas and just stop stop the reproduction and and the problem really dramatically recedes. Yeah, that's what we found out when we had our colony in Newburyport with over 300 cats in 1992. And now we, you know, as of 2008, we have no cats on the waterfront. So it it truly is uh, a successful model uh, if done correctly, you know, and, and, and making sure that that community has all the support that it needs in order to be successful with their trap neuter return program. Um, so, um, one last question I wanted to ask you, um, what are your thoughts about uh, spay-neuter before adoption? What are our shelter's responsibilities with regards to getting that done? Uh, my view is it, it, it needs to, it, it's, a, it's a no-brainer in my mind. I think in order to, again, make it easy and convenient and help set people up for success when they're adding a pet to their family, we should be sending those pets homes already, home already spayed or neutered. I recognize that's a challenge for some shelters still. I think it's a lot better than it was when I first started in this field. But I I think there's really, we have to do that. I think if we want to set the right example and ensure that we're not adding to the problem ourselves, it's it's on us to, to spay and neuter before we send them home. So... I think that only makes sense because I think trying to follow up with vouchers and ensure that it got done is often more work than just doing it on the front end. And I think to be able to build that infrastructure so that every pet who is heading home from an animal shelter adopted has been spayed or neutered is is absolutely critical for our shelter field. If you saw a stray cat on the street, which you did when you moved into your new house, um, how did you initially approach the situation? Did you, you went and you found out that these cats were owned by your neighbor or quasi owned by your neighbor or how did you go about identifying that? Yeah, I, I immediately started talking to the neighbor just to see what he knew about the cats. And he was actually, I mean, he was a kind gentleman, even though, you know, they had started from his own pets, uh, which, which wasn't great, but he was trying to do the right thing. He recognized, oh, wow, they started breeding and he started to try to fix, you know, sterilize them, but he was feeding them every day. And so we just partnered together. You know, I, I approached him very non-judgmentally and said, hey, how can I help? And uh, together we made sure all of them were spayed and neutered. And, but I, you know, I, I was lucky too, because, you know, I was working with the Humane Society United States at the time. So I, I already knew what to do. You know, it wasn't like I was just a random person who came in and had to figure it out. But even still, you know, I had to decide, you know, I had to organize and get traps and I had to set up the spay neuter appointments. And at the time, probably the nearest um, clinic that was available to me was almost an hour away. And so I had to, you know, I made multiple trips to get them all done. And I, I think, again, that's where that convenience and um, accessibility becomes so important because I don't know how many people would would do that, you know, um, be willing to do that kind of distance. But uh, it worked for us. And I, you know, I I just t- sort of took it one step at a time. And I, I took pictures of everyone and made a little spreadsheet so I know who was who and make sure I had gotten everyone fixed uh, along the way. So, it was a. It was actually a fun effort. I enjoyed it because I learned so much about cats and community cats, and of course, you know, added more to my house. So that now I have four inside, and uh, I do consider myself a crazy cat lady at this point. And it's all because of those cats that were on the property when we moved in. They they <laughs> taught they taught you. They did. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. 
<laughs> How can people find you if they're interested in finding more uh, out more about your services or have any questions? Is there a, a way for people to reach out to you? Well, we're working on that. Um, I'm, you know, as I mentioned in the early part of our discussion here, that we're starting a consulting business. It's called Adisa, A D I S A. And we're working on a website that we'll be launching. Our goal is within the month, um, and it's adisagroup.com. So once that's up and running, I would love to hear from everyone. Good. We'll make sure that's in the show notes. Thank you. Um, and for our final question, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Betsy? I'll just add that I think, you know, we all, those who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure are cat lovers and they've sought this out because they are passionate about whatever cat lives in their lives, you know, whether it's the ones inside their house or the ones that live outdoors that they're taking care of. And I think it just is a good reminder to all of us of the importance of that kind of connection we all have to animals in our lives. And it can be so enriching. And even with feral cats, I have found while I may not be able to snuggle and pet them like I do my inside cats, I've developed a relationship with them and that and there's a lot of gray when it comes to cats. I think it's hard to label them feral or friendly. As I've noticed over the 10 years I've taken care of some of these cats, they kind of move between all those worlds. Um, some of them have gotten super friendly with me and then on one day they just don't want to be friendly. You know, it's just interesting and I think cats are kind of mysterious in that way but I, it makes me love them all the more and I think it's all the more enriching for all of us who are connected to cats. Betsy, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was absolutely fascinating. And uh, I look forward to having you again sometime. Thank you, Stacey. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. If you email me a screenshot of your review with your name and address and your t-shirt size, I will send you a Community Cats t-shirt. The reviews really help. Thanks, everybody. Wow.